0: So welcome back to the Machine Learning Street Talk YouTube channel with my two compadres for today. We've got uh, PhD MIT Dr. Keith Duggar and we've got Yannick Lightspeed-Kilcher.
1: Excellent. How are you?
0: Doing well. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. Well, uh, today we wanted to cover a a couple of topics. So there was a, a huge exams fiasco in the UK uh, all about algorithmic um, fairness, and and it had lots of coverage in the UK, and also our friend Francois Chollet has done a second appearance on the uh, Lex Friedman podcast. Yeah, I, I guess uh, we should just jump straight in and and talk about the the algorithm thing. So, in the UK, we've had the Corona pandemic this year, and. It's been an absolute nightmare, and in a particular focus here is um, all of the students taking their GCSE and A level exams couldn't do them, of
1: course, so they had to be predicted. And sorry, what are what kind of are those exams like the the SATs or are those global for the entire UK?
0: Yes, that's right. So we we have GCSEs, which is around when you're 15 and 16, and then those lead to A levels. A levels lead to university. Okay. So the exams this year were predicted by an algorithm. And the reason they were predicted by an algorithm was um, the, the first idea was to use the teacher predicted grades. But the teacher predicted grades were inflated by about 40 percent. One of the regulators uh, in the UK stepped in and this was uh, on a diktat by the government. The government were very clear that they didn't want to have grade inflation and i can understand why because grade inflation is not good for anyone uh, if you inflate the currency so to speak or you add too much water to the mustard then you end up with a signal which is not particularly useful for any further education institutions to select on so clearly the the idea there was to bring it down now one of the things that concerned me about this was the facts were not really reported no one no one really spoke about how the algorithm worked and the BBC, for example, widely reported this as you know, the government had come in and downgraded the results by 40 percent or so. And the the real story, in my opinion, is that the teachers inflated the grades by 40 percent and the government had to come in and just to standardise them back down again. Um, so I was really disappointed in particular with the way the BBC reported this. But to the BBC's credit, I've listened to a couple of podcasts on, you know, from Radio 4, and that seems to be a little bit less biased than iPlayer and BBC News. But generally speaking, it's been very uh, kind of misrepresented. So why don't we have a look at this algorithm?
1: I'll share my screen. So the, the algorithm is supposed to come in after the teachers or just completely circumvent the teachers?
0: Well, the idea is to completely circumvent the teachers. Okay. And just to give some idea of the accuracy of the teacher assessed grades, they are roughly 60% accurate, which isn't very good. And this algorithm that that they replaced it with was also about 60% accurate, but it's not about the accuracy. Uh, what what does
1: accurate mean in that context? Does it, like it predicts a number, right?
0: Every single student will have a fixed number of exams. For every single exam, they will have a grade which is a number from one to 10. And the accuracy is how the percentage to which that was exactly correct.
1: Okay.
2: Exactly correct, okay.
0: Yeah, so I don't think it was a distance measure or anything like that. So a little bit of history, if you can see this. So um, the Secretary of State for Education instructed the head of Ofqual to ensure, as far as possible, that the qualification standards are maintained and the distribution grades follow a similar profile to that of previous years. Fine. They were computed using an algorithm devised by Ofqual and more than 4.6 million GCSEs, so about 97% of GCSEs and about 87% of the A-level grades were computed. It wasn't used for vocational qualifications. Now, this is the algorithm. Now, it's reasonably straightforward. But there are two versions of it. So if the cohort of students in that particular class was less than 15, then they would revert back to the centre assessed grade, which is basically what the teacher said. Now, this part is probably the biggest source of um, unfairness, in my opinion, because private schools tend to have smaller classes, Mm -hmm. which means they would get the inflated teacher grades. But for the larger cohorts, uh, greater than 15, you can see it's a convex combination between these two quantities. And it depends on this R here. And R basically means, do we have reliable um, GCSE and and previous predictions? If we do, then it's a function of C and the predicted um, grades for GCSEs last year and the predicted grades for GCSEs for the other classes before last year. So this C quantity here is the historical grade distribution of uh, grades at that particular school averaged over the last three years. First of all, just from an ethical point of view, a lot of people think that it's completely crazy that you could predict someone's exam results using the school's performance last year, because it implies a degree of environmental determinism, and that is horrifying for people (laughs) just to think about
2: yeah of course people are often horrified by the idea that their performance is in any way dependent on something that isn't a magical sort of inner quantity that we can't like possibly define whatever that is, like soul or or uh, individual capability or or something. but at the end of the day, like scientifically we're sort of some of our parts, right and those parts are many things are, genetic information, our epigenetic information, the whole totality of information that's been accumulated in our neurons throughout our life. And so, of course, environment plays a role, right? And of course, at least it plays a role in a population sense. But the reason why people get so frustrated with those quantities being used for individuals is we have this concept that we have to treat everyone as an individual and, and allow for the possibility that in this variation within this environment any particular individual may excel they may underperform too by the way it's not <laughs> it's not a a single edged sword that cuts both ways so that's where you get into these sort of quagmires of like my particular child sure they went to this school that historically uh, underperforms but they as an individual rose above that and it's a shame if somebody uh, doesn't have that chance
1: so the just to be clear, the grades were predicted, basically for the entire class, the same, so because yeah, because exactly. the formula says nothing about the individual student, it's basically just you, are, you go to this school, and would, this school in, his, in history did this good at math, and then in this year, so these other quantities are all referring just to this particular grade and this particular school.
0: That's correct. Yeah, I I should um, finish explaining. So this will capture just the grade distribution for a particular um, school. And then the only signal that they do take in then for this particular cohort is the rank. So the the school will say this is the rank of students and then they will take into account how those ranks were distributed last year. So they basically capture buckets and then in rank order, they would just drop the grades into those buckets. So if, if you had a class of the uh, same size and you had three A-stars last year, then you'd get three A-stars this year.
1: And then but, your best students would basically get the, those grades. Exactly. Okay.
0: So assuming that the distribution is roughly the same, this seems to work. But this bit's interesting. So if you do have historical predicted grades for GCSEs, both for this class and previous classes, then it takes away the difference. So this is assuming that the... The teachers are predicting inaccurately, but consistently inaccurately. So, if they predicted that this particular class had even better GCSEs than they predicted for the previous years, then let's give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll take the difference and we'll we'll add that on to the the centre grade distribution.
1: I've and and this just something I've heard is that for some schools it was, it was they basically got none of the top grades. Is that correct? I I'm just I so I come. I'm not UK-in, I'm also not closely affiliated and I just hear things through the ether. And I recall some people were complaining that it was mathematically impossible for them to get the highest possible grade, so even if they were the top student in their class just because their school wasn't doing well previously, it was they just didn't get any allocations of, of top grades. Is that, I don't know, have you heard anything of this? or?
0: Well, yes, it's implicit in in the algorithms. If your class um, didn't get any A stars last year, then there will be none this year, no matter how good you are.
1: Yeah. So it is somehow understandable that that would infuriate some people. And it's thinkable that you might want to do something like a Laplacian smoothing to basically say, okay, uh, we'll give each school at least one super duper grade. Or something like this such that in the off case that someone rises above massively this outliers that can be captured it, it, i can see that it is annoying right that you go to this and just and you're doing so well and then this <laughs> algorithm comes and you're just out like go right. there, there goes your chance that yeah. did over- happen
2: sorry kid no especially because it's only taking into account one year right like just just last year maybe last year we didn't have any any A stars. But if you look over, I don't Mm. know, uh, five or 10 years, maybe on average, we had two every year or something like that. And just, of course, by Hassan statistics, we happen to run into a case where we didn't have any last year. It's sort of a legitimate complaint there. Well, it it takes the average over the last three years. Oh, I missed that. That
0: should should smooth that a a little bit. Okay. Um, It's a tough one because I want to get into the ethics of this a little bit because... um, one of the reasons why people were so annoyed about this was fundamentally they um, resent this idea of environmental determinism, and and they think that we are a blank slate. And if anything, they think the university should positively discriminate and allow students in from poorer areas as a matter of course.
2: Well, I think they're just out of touch with with modern science, and I think I think the blank slate idea, at least as far as I'm I'm aware, in kind of scientific circles is discredited. We're not a blank slate. If you look at sort of any personality kind of traits or, or things like that, on average, they have at least a 50% correlation with your, with your genetics, right? At least in the sort of current environments in which that data was collected, which is mostly say United States and Western kind of environments. Uh, obviously, that's a variable that changes with time. So in some parts of the world where say malnutrition is is very prevalent, that's going to increase the variation that environment plays in that and so that balance can change or for example in some parts of the southern united states there are, there are even parasites that can cause uh mental problems if you get them as a young child like the, the stereotype of a, a slack jawed southerner actually is in part due to parasitic organisms that, that live down the south so that's a, a thing that changes with time but it's absolutely understood that in large parts of the Western world, genetics accounts for half or more, depending on the trait that you're looking at. And the funny part is, nobody has any qualms whatsoever with admitting this about, say, eye color, right? Is it controversial that eye color is heritable? Is it controversial that hair color is heritable? No. Is it controversial that height, that skin color, et cetera. If you go to any kind of disease prevalence, your susceptibility to heart disease, all of these things, doctors ask you, do you have a family history of X, Y, Z? Why? Because scientifically we know it matters and nobody has a problem with it if it's like a, a base physical trait. Well, what is the brain? It's an organ, right? It's a bio, it's a bio machine. It's obviously all the other organs in our body going to inherit traits based on its its genetic code and therefore the things which your brain does uh, personality um, computation understanding intelligence whatever have to have some heritability It's just it would be preposterous to believe that it that it doesn't frankly
1: yeah on the so on the very on the other side I think you can make an argument that systems like this are, self replicating in a way so if you take it to the very extreme and say okay we have a pandemic now forever and all we're going to do is simply use the same algorithm over and over again (laughs) the schools that didn't get any good students this year they will never get any and that's also not their you know his society is always changing and (laughs) these poor areas might be because traditionally you know, the good schools will attract the good, the rich people living around them they'll pay more taxes and that'll again uplift the kind of quality of the school and so on and this might yeah. have been in change in flux during this time so yeah i'm i would I, and they probably have considered this like doing the way i said is you do some kind of laplacian smoothing where you just say okay every school gets one, like countries do when they have differently sized states or or member members where they say, okay, by default, everyone gets two representatives. And then on top is the population, something like this, where you just account for, for that initial change to happen. And maybe they've considered it. I don't know. It's so hard. So imagine someone comes to you and is okay. There is no, like it's ruled out that we're going to do these exams. It's just, not possible. You can debate that whether it was possible or not during this pandemic. But let's say someone comes to you and says it's not possible, but we need grades. What are you going to do? It's so hard. And some people I feel are, you know, voice their complaints, but also I don't want to be in that situation. It's terrible.
0: You you raise an an interesting point because what's really important, I think, as a mitigating factor here is that they've only done it once because you can say just as you did that if they do this again and again then similar to training a language model on data from the 1950s you're you're kind of um, freezing things in time and you're stopping uh, people from being able to evolve uh, socially and, and and so on from a from an ethical point of view I worry that it undermines trust in in algorithms because we don't really have much trust in algorithms at the moment. That the government use them to see where we should spend our money and whether people are falling into homelessness and who's cheating the benefit system and policing. And of course, algorithms are used on social media like Facebook and Netflix, and they work incredibly well. Uh, it's not just learning your recommendations from your behaviour; it's looking, you know, at patterns. And it's looking at you in context to people like you and they work really well. And I think it undermines trust in algorithms. Uh, I think uh, people already have a really bad conception of algorithms because of Cambridge Analytica. And this was one of the first times where loads of students actually came out to protest an algorithm, which seems crazy because there, there was still grade inflation and everyone did pretty well. So is it why are students coming out and protesting? when they didn't even have to take any exams and the grades still inflated over last year.
2: Well, we have to unpack some things there because there's a couple points you raised. As far as the mistrust and algorithms, look at the end of the day, the algorithms were just created by people. And so to some extent we should mistrust algorithms as much as we mistrust people. And and clearly people don't really trust people. And we've been having issues with fairness and grading and every other circumstance for a long time. You look at that number 15, What's so special about 15? 15, some kind of magic number like, gee, if if only we had 16 data points, then it's reliable. <laughs> it's So people make these, I don't know if I can say poor decisions, but arbitrary, questionable decisions all the time. They're writing code, uh, not in this particular case, but say in other algorithmic situations, they're writing code of such a complexity that only small portions of the human Species really can write them correctly in the first place. Um, So we should have a healthy mistrust of of algorithms. And I think that's why transparency like this, making the algorithms publicly, being able to discuss them, being able to have candid conversations about what kinds of correlations are we allowed to use and what kinds are we not allowed to use is probably like really the path that we have to start taking steps down to wrangle this. But uh, hey, look, at the end of the day... If people mistrust algorithms, just ask them, okay, so would you rather just have one person making the decision? Is that, I don't think they're going to be happy with either that, so. I Well,
0: that's one of the key things is that we're just swapping one problem for another problem. And in many ways, an algorithm is better because it's completely transparent and at least it's repeatable. Yeah, it's repeatable. And I can see some benefits about this. They clearly designed it carefully because they wanted to explicitly avoid racial bias and uh, the the teachers arguably are are far more biased than the algorithm were. So now that the only real bias is is the, the environmentally determined bias. But it does raise issues about AI ethics in general because the government wants to be data driven. Everyone wants to be more data driven. And ethics in general is, is quite an interesting thing, right? I'm, I'm involved in quite a lot of the AI ethics and data ethics discussions at, at my work. And clearly one of our one of our r- uh, rules that you see all over the place is that you shouldn't be making consequential decisions about people's future because you need to respect the, the, the dignity uh, of folks. And quite often- the rule goes something like this, if there's an anthropocentric objective, then you, know, you should try and uh, avoid it if at all possible, especially if it's consequential. But this is an example where you're between a rock and a hard place, and you quite simply need to do it. There's no other alternative. In fact, I think it's better than the alternative, if, if you had to argue. Right. But it, it does bring the whole discussion of AI ethics into the fore, because as well as being transparent, I think your reasoning needs to be recorded, because our ethical landscape changes all the time. If you're, if you say, I'm an ethical company, company, what that means is that you have a certain set of values, and you're being consistent to those values. And pe- people's opinions change all the time. If, if there was a, a statue of Barack Obama, they, they might tear it down in 50 years' time because he wasn't a vegan. So, um, well, so it so much be surprising, the- maybe 20 years. Well, exactly. But there's a lot of moral posturing. And this is something I notice with um, AI ethicists online, is that they talk about it as if it is a really um, absolute thing that we should all agree on. And we should talk to social scientists to get ideas about AI ethics. And of course, most of these folks as have been educated into imbecility and they um, come from a yeah, postmodernist but- viewpoint and so on.
2: Yeah, but I I really think it's a cop-out to say let's not make any consequential decisions with algorithms because again, what's the alternative? Should we flip a coin? That's what the joker says or whoever the dude was in the comic says is fair. Or should we just leave it up to the, the whims of a single judge? Let's have, or is a committee better? There's no easy answers here. Like Yannick brought up earlier, it's okay, you can't take tests. So now what do you do? I don't think an algorithm should have 15 in it. Like I agree with you, that's probably a source of huge amounts of bias to smaller class sizes, but we've got to have rules right? and what are algorithms? They're sets of rules. So I think we're going down the right path of using algorithms, but we have to do openly, we've got to do the very hard work of reaching consensus on what these algorithms are allowed to do and what they're not allowed to do, in terms of how they're actually implemented, what correlations they use, data bias, fairness, et cetera. But we can't just say we're not going to make any consequential decisions with them.
0: I know, but I think it changes depending on the circumstances. It depends how risk averse the particular company is. And a moral framework is a continuum. So, for example, if you were an environmentalist, you would think that oil companies should stop trading tomorrow and they should just pack up their bags and stop yeah. trading. And um, millions of people should die. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you might believe that the profit motive is completely morally abhorrent as well. And actually, this brings me on to something quite interesting. So, I was looking at this uh, thing yesterday. Microsoft had brought out this, this tool called Fair Learn. And this is a way of um, understanding various different biases in in AI models and so on. And the first example on here is loading in a data set and um, plotting the difference between the earnings of men and women. And <laughs> clearly, this is a politically charged thing, right? Because if you were on the, on the right, you would argue that uh, women have a choice right they if they decide to to start a family then they are economically disadvantaging themselves and people on the left would have a completely different opinion and say that we should we should uh, counteract that disadvantage and, and we should pay men and women equally but it, it does rather lead to a discussion of the political slant in the way that we are discussing AI ethics and fairness
1: yeah I guess more and more you can frame almost any almost anything that where an algorithm touches society and you can ethically analyze pretty much anything and in maybe if you go a bit further you can problematize pretty much anything though this great thing it really hits close to to home. If you think back of you as a student regardless of whether you thought it was an accurate assessment of your abilities you would have hated this thing especially if you're doing fairly well and you thought "Ah, maybe if I give it my all I can do something though probably not right probably not but (laughs) you 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 want a chance yeah exactly I think that's that's what, what bugs people and here we can look at it in the terms of in the terms of kind of this so I think a prevalent question in these frameworks is always let's look at who is harmed by this and who is benefited by an algorithm like this and to me if I look at it like this it's not entirely clear because who is actually who does it benefit small class sizes okay maybe because then the grade is inflated by the teachers if it's below 15 but uh, who is harmed let's so if you're harmed if yeah you are this really stellar outlier in a school that does not have stellar outliers right then okay but that's it is unfair but it is excessively rare you're also harmed if you're in a small class and there happens to be this one other person that just is better because it's rank order so you're not given the chance to achieve a good score in this test because this other person is just that much better and you're in the small class and therefore your rank order matters really much but the small classes are already inflated it's really oh like the actual big harm seems to be if if you were just statistically outlier is good that year but your school isn't for the rest of people probably it was okay-ish accurate and i agree with with you tim it's easy to get (laughs) to loudly voice your opinion to something like this because you you could hardly find anyone who says yeah okay that that's a good thing (laughs) it's it's well but if to those who voice opinion the, the question is just how would you do it better? Like I I said, okay, right. you could do this Laplacian smoothing to account for these stellar outliers in each school, which would harm people that are on the margins because then all the other schools that would actually be good will get one place less. And there would be always the student that is at the cutoff that is now dropped because of this. You know what?
2: The other, the other thing that really concerns me about the way right. in which excuse me, a lot of the public looks at this, is they're forgetting about very real correlations and the importance of correlations. It's like I've had so many discussions with AI ethicists where at the end of the day, it seems to me bias is really correlations we, we don't like. Like that's essentially what it comes down to. Like that example you just brought up from Microsoft. Okay. Obviously, if there's a pay gap, based on gender. Maybe we need to have some discussions about you know, who should be bearing the burden of childbearing. Should it solely be women? Should it be society? Should it be employers, etc.? There's some legitimate conversation there. On the other hand, what if they had shown that exact same website, except instead of pay gap, they put prevalence of breast cancer? Is anyone surprised by the fact that 95% of breast cancer cases would be women. Is that a correlation that we want to ignore? I don't think so because that's going to impact negatively the medical care of women if we just try to make our algorithms completely ignore gender for all purposes. And so we almost need to have a, a community-driven, a crowdsourced database of correlations and purposes and whether or not that's okay to use it for that purpose. That's the can of worms we're opening is yes you can use the gender factor for medical care but not for job selection can you can't you maybe you can depending on the jurisdiction you're in use it for deciding who wins custody in the case of a divorce how about that now there's a bunch of gray areas right but we, we can't if we make our algorithms so dumb that they can't discover very real correlations we run the risk of, of destroying tremendous value that those algorithms can bring.
1: Yeah, and I think in the terms of this these great distributions, there are some quite nasty correlations, right? As Tim said, the, the small classes, they tend to be the rich people. And Correct. so you're like, by employing that algorithm, one year more, you're basically giving an already predetermined advantage to those people. Now that might be completely justified, because they might be actually better. But still, people feel that. And then on the other hand, who, who, is, who gets the lower grade distributions? It's going to be the, I don't know again about the UK, but it would be the inner city, maybe foreigner population, immigrant population that is less educated, would be assigned the lower grades, and that just rubs people in the wrong way and it does so almost regardless of the fact that if you are really if you're if you play tough love you'd have to say look very probably that is going to be the great distribution again this year right in this school In, in both cases if you are honest it's that but it just people find it and I can understand that people say look this is just upholding these kind of things that we don't really want
2: yeah yeah
0: it, it comes back to the dichotomy between equality of opportunity and equality of outcome as well because some of these fairness things are are basically saying that we should we shouldn't take reality as it is because reality is wrong we should move towards the kind of reality that that we want to live in and that's why this is always quite a politically charged conversation uh, on this for example if you give a bunch of inflated grades to students you are it's, it's like inflating the currency it, it's worth less and this year it didn't seem to be the case so there's been massive over uh, oversubscribed courses at universities and some of the students have been deferred to next year and that means that now the folks next year have to do even better than they did before because they are competing for folks that were deferred to next year, this time around. And I also wanna bring in to the conversation, why do we have university at all? Is it something which is completely outdated? Is it part of our civic life? You know, is is it something which is a a great moral achievement for us in, in the UK? we had this political target set recently that 50 percent of folks should be educated to university level almost all parents aspire to have their kids to be educated at university level yeah. and now the education secretary has finally said well we're training for jobs that don't even exist that's uh, right pe- people are doing apprenticeships are earning more money basically the 13 least prestigious universities are about to go out of business and university education
2: isn't for everyone but is that just snobbishness no, not at, look, uh, so I, I'm most familiar with the United States, right, where, where I am, obviously, and so what, the way we do it here is people are guaranteed education for 12 years, right? well, up to 12th grade, which is 18, and maybe they had some, some preschool or whatnot, and my kind of take on this is if we can't, if here we're not teaching people enough to be successful in life after 12 years of education okay, we're doing something wrong. For example, and again, I don't live in Germany, but my understanding there, for example, is that at the age of 16, a lot of folks go into kind of vocational paths where they do uh, apprenticeships, essentially, like old school apprenticeships, and learn successful trades, and that people take tests, and only a small percentage of people end up going to university at the state's expense, right? And I just think that I think what's happened is we've forgotten that life is not monolithic. There is no one way in which life lives. What life is, this vast, complex network of of niches everywhere, and people can fill so many different roles in life, and yet we've created this one-size-fits-all education system that tries to funnel everyone down a single path, and that just doesn't seem to reflect the reality of of life and work and we should instead what we should be focusing on is for each individual what are they passionate about what do they want to do what are they good at doing and what are the overlaps of those things and and what areas in life would you be really happy and and very productive in and contributing to society and what path how can i help you get from where you are today to that point point? and i think we'd have a, a huge variety And it's not 50% of people going to study psychology like here in the U.S.
1: Yeah, I think in Germany, it's also been a bit inflated in the last few years, but you're essentially right in the the kind of path that people can choose. In Switzerland, it's still a bit less than in Germany, people going to university. And as you say, people are mostly either taking up vocational training, manual training, or jobs like this at sixteen, or they go into specialized schools at sixteen, right. like real trade schools. Um, and there's nothing for, wrong for with most that. Jobs. Like, no, no, this, you know, trades, I mean, this works trades are fantastic.
2: Yeah. But we have this yeah. we have this weird thing where it's somehow bad to be a CNC operator. You know, it's, it's bad to be a farmer. It's bad to be a, an electrician, a plumber, a painter. Why? Are, these are
1: noble pursuits. Yeah. You know, I I completely so, agree. Oh, sorry. So, I yeah. Um, I, in fact. So in Switzerland, I just know the system here, right? There is always a path to higher education. And that's what I like about it is that for the people who go into trades or go into these kind of very specialized schools, there is paths that lead back to higher education in case they want to add on, in case they want to do more academic things. So a lot of people come from very different paths to higher education. That's pretty cool. It's still, I think, 20 to 30 percent of people still end up at university at some point, but it's it's not. They come, they split up and they learn their trades and so on. And so that means a lot of people in university actually have business experience already, working experience. So it's pretty, pretty cool. But in that case, it's it's nice to say everyone, their thing, and so on. But then what do we do in school? There's this grade. This is one number, right? And you're ranked. Like, literally, in this algorithm, you're ranked by this number. And everyone's ranked by that number. And that number, right. even if you go into a trade school, that number predicts how happy the trade school is to see you. And that's it's partially the fault of our society by not differentiating the students enough. But in the other hand, it's, it's the fault of... Biology, because there's this thing called intelligence, and the more you have of it, the better you'll do in whatever. Right? It keeps I mean, getting you, in the way, doesn't it? You <laughs> can have different interests and and whatnot, but ultimately, it's you can. So I I think we could definitely do a better job of differentiating students, uh, splitting them up earlier, especially in the U.S. Twelve years, <laughs> and uh, but also this is reflected in these tests because everyone takes the test, and then everyone gets one number, and that determines and the, the university is kind of put at the top as the kind of if you're this good or better you can go to university right it's right <laughs> so.
0: yeah it it does raise the question though because it's never been easier to get to university i think it's fair to say now in the uk if you want to go to university you can uh, as an example i i don't have any a levels at all i was a complete idiot at school and i started a software company in my 20s and I think when I was about 24 I just showed up at a local university and said look actually um, I'd quite like to go to university after all can I come in and they said yeah you seem like a fairly intellectually mature kind of guy we'll let you come in you can skip the first year I got a first class degree and I'm a big believer that uh, if you work hard First of all, I don't think university is that big of a signal anymore. Google have just said that they are now going to provide a vocational course, so you can do a six-month certificate to work at Google. And I'm not sure that's a good thing, because it's basically, if you indoctrinate yourself taking our course, then you can come and work at Google. Microsoft (laughs) do similar certificates, by the way, Microsoft certifications. But ironically, if you had one, they probably wouldn't employ you. But but, uh, university, though, it's more than it's more than than economic utilitarianism. I I think there's an argument that you go there and you're you are exposed to ideas that are different to yours, although admittedly, most of the ideas are quite leftist ideas these days. But it's uh, a lot of people think of it as their formative years. I would agree with that to a certain extent. But you could also make the argument that maybe if you just move to another city and just join some interest clubs and so on, uh, take yannick's youtube channel for example it's never been easier for someone to go online learn about machine learning you can see world-class lectures on youtube you can start coding on github you can if you're an industrious hard-working person you have a wealth of opportunity and you don't really need to go to university do you
2: well see so about that it's occurred to me that the big difference there is that in universities, you're, or before COVID, you were forced to be together. That's how you ran into people that had other ideas. So it's like the, the proverbial water cooler at work, right? Everybody has to go there to get some drink. Uh, well, back in the old days, now everybody probably has bottled water at their desk, but whatever. Everybody has to go somewhere to, uh, in my town is the garbage dump. Everybody goes there. A lot of people drop off their own garbage, so you run into people there. But the point is, if you get people that have to go somewhere physically, then they have this chance of interacting with others. The weird thing about the age, the Internet age, is that rather than being this massive water cooler, it's actually more like this massive hallway with a bunch of highly specific doors uh, to little dungeons that people go and they walk into and they never come out again. You become very crystallized in the way that you think because you can just be on the YouTube channels that you and enjoy and agree with, and you, you can follow people that you agree with. And there's no mechanism really that, in fact, the algorithms are even tuned now to make it so that you rarely get exposed to anything that you're not going to be agreeing with and hi- highly engaged with. So I almost I'm waiting for some technology to emerge in cyberspace that finds a way of forcing people that don't agree with each other to spend time together i don't know how that's going to happen though
0: cool well yeah it's, it's a really interesting discussion I, I, I suppose my career is built on machine learning and I, I see this as an existential threat it's a little bit like the freedom of speech debate. now you can't offend anyone And if you're saying anything of any importance to a large group of people, you're going to offend someone. And it's a similar argument here. It's the argument of the edge case. Well, you might discriminate against one person unfairly. Therefore you can't do this thing. And statistics is all about the group. It's not about the individual. It's a, it's a utilitarian thing that works most of the time. And I'm a little bit resistant to arguments of the edge case, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it's, it's the edge case on one case and on the other case, it's really, I think, what people have a problem with is that it perpetuates the status quo, right? Yeah. And I already, we learn, we learn to drive here at, what, 18? And if you're below 21 or 23 or so, your car insurance costs more. And you can already be furious at that. Just and if you're I, male, it probably yes. Right? Just because I'm, yeah, I drive well. If you just, what to look at me, right? If you just look at me, drive, I drive. I haven't had an accident and whatnot, but it doesn't matter. I'm. Yeah, there's, sorry, this, just, there's just a trade-off.
0: Just on that though, as a young male, you are brimming with testosterone, and you drive like a complete <laughs> idiot. You're more right. aggressive. I don't think any young male is complaining to their local member of parliament saying they're paying too much on my car insurance
2: well here's something interesting in the u.s some insurance companies have started to allow you to connect a a device to your vehicle that that tracks your driving like how suddenly you're stopping the speeds that you're going etc and you it can collect individual data on you as an individual. And as a result of that, you can get lower rates. But is this interesting? You're, you're pointing out something very fundamental here, which is, yeah, machine learning, statistics, etc. It's all about learning from large sample sizes, i.e. groups essentially. And yet, at least what we strive for, say in the United States and lots of the Western world is for everyone to be treated as an individual. So it's like when Yannick brought up earlier, look, uh, just let's just say we can't do these tests for whatever reason. I almost was thinking to myself, how about we just demand that we find a way to do these tests, like whether they're done virtually or whatever, let's find, let's build some solution to where we can assess the individuals as individuals. I think we really have to strive you know, for that somehow.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. So you, you could call it um, more of a personalized approach to, pattern recognition health companies are doing a similar thing so in health insurance there are applications that you can download and they ask you a series of questions and you can do some gamification in there and you can say that i'm doing this amount of exercise and it All of this essentially allows you to demonstrate that you are not the typical person in your demographic. You are someone who takes personal responsibility for your well-being, and you are doing all of these things. Mm. And I completely agree with you. That's in in some sense, that's more fair.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and at that point, it just becomes a question of money, basically. I would have welcomed you know the UK to say, let's do the tests. Like there is, because just... That's, let's say, the fairest to the individual. But again, you, you'd run into problems. What do you do? Online tests? Okay. Some people they don't have a quiet room at home. Like literally, this is this this mm-hmm. this this whole COVID thing is probably drives the biggest divide between rich and poor. Because you're if you're in a fairly wealthy family, you have a room at home. All the kids there have their own computers. They have their quiet rooms and so on. And in other families literally like the the computer is in the living room and it's loud all the time. You know, the, someone watches TV in the background, nowhere to do homework or, or attend your classes. And it's going to be like, even if you say let's find a way to do these tests, I, I think not only would it probably cost enormous amounts of money to do them anyway, it would cost even more to do it, to do them in a way that doesn't discriminate further the the things that are already kind of in imbalance among the students it's like it's almost unsolvable problem at that
2: well so i want to challenge that a bit so I, i agree there's cost but i'm not and and i don't have any data to back this up i think we're speculating at this point but i'm not convinced that it's a cost that's that outweighs the value we would get as a society if we really started to tackle some of those opportunity issues. Uh, Like, for example, there was just a court decision in California that now California universities can't use SATs and ACTs this year for admission because folks with physical challenges, physical disabilities, have been having a lot more difficulty getting access to those tests during uh, COVID, right? And I've long felt that one of the best things we could do in the United States to help our education system is make it to where Parents, if they choose, just by they can choose to drop off their children at 7 a.m. in the morning and pick them up at 5 or 6 p.m. in the afternoon at school. And for that whole time, they're, they get breakfast. They're taken, watched over in the morning. After school, they have activities they can do. I had after-school care at my at my little school when I was a child that my mother didn't have to pay for. And it really enabled her as a single mom to be able to work and not have to worry about me until five o'clock. And I think that would maybe cost us 50% more of what we're spending in, in education right now. And yet I think the payback would be multiple times that. So I think some of these issues, we should really do the hard work of looking into it and investigating it and maybe doing some proofs of concept. Like what if we make testing areas available that not only serve as testing areas but serve as study areas for kids as well and yeah it provides computers for for kids that don't have computers and there's tutors nearby maybe if we build that type of infrastructure we'll get far more value out of it than just solely the being able to conduct tests for individuals fairly
1: yeah that makes sense
2: yeah i completely agree with that i think
0: that's very fair well i We've been talking about this for nearly an hour. We should move on to François Cholet, which is the second part of the street talk conversation today. I, I took some notes on Cholet's interview with with Lex, and uh, it was a great interview. And Yannick and I have probably put out about eight wo- eight, eight hours worth of content on Cholet in the last few months. <laughs> it's absolutely insane, and so
2: you're, you're we so you're fanboys. Are, okay. We are. We okay. are fanboys. We are,
1: but but it seems like not much of the community is. Uh, so
2: you're forward-thinking <laughs> fanboys,
1: or, or fanboys of a forward-thinker. <laughs> you're ahead I, of your I time. I just know that my videos, get they, they get significantly <laughs> less views it, it, uh, on this on that particular paper, but wow. who knows why. Maybe the thumbnails were also not that great or so.
2: Well, because intelligence is very offensive. We've been discussing that for the past hour. It just gets in the way of everything. It's it's not it's good. Great. So I think it's that's what's driving folks away.
0: Indeed. Uh, I must admit, it was quite a difficult paper to read, just in terms of length. It was a huge paper. I, it took me a couple of weekends to read it. Uh, and I got the distinct impression that Lex didn't read it, actually, which irritated me a tiny bit, because he asked at one point, what is a prior and what is experience? And I'm, I'm fairly sure Lex has got a PhD in machine learning from MIT. I'd expect him to know what that was. But just in summary...
2: Hey, in fairness, okay, in fairness, I often ask dumb questions because I really want to s- to get the other person's input on that. And sometimes, maybe I knew 90% of what they said, but that 10% can be a little gem that I learned. So maybe, let's give him the benefit yeah, of Yeah, we'll that give out.
0: him the benefit of the doubt. He was probably teasing it out. But uh, Cholet's main ideas around intelligence is that it's a process and uh, the output is a skill. So uh, if you can think of a railroad builder would be a form of intelligence and the railroad itself would be a skill. And his fundamental idea is that it's all about an information conversion ratio. So going from uh, information about something to a skill programme and the information in a kind of area or a space of potential tasks is intelligence to a certain extent. So put more formally, it's the the efficiency at which you can transform information into skill programmes. And when you look at the formalism in his paper, he formalises intelligence within a space of possible things you can do as a function of generalisation difficulty normalised by priors times experience and priors are for example in a CNN the prior is the local connectivity and the convolution and experience is just how much training data or how many things that you've seen. So Strollet's conception essentially is that you can buy skill with unlimited priors and experience and that's what's happening in the deep learning world at the moment and true intelligence is being able to broadly generalize from a few examples of something
1: so i have not i've not watched the interview but i'm pretty sure they've touched on gpt3 if i had to guess have
0: they have i mean to be honest so i took notes on the interview and almost all of it is rehashing stuff that we've done to death and there's no point going over it again
2: so I, I feel like I have to look. I I watch the interview, and I have a lot of agreement with with the general ideas and, and directions that he's trying to go, the point he's trying to make. But I want to bring up something. So last year, do you know who Patrick Winston is? Um, PhD student no. of Marvin Minsky. Nice. So one of the one of the very early AI fathers or sons of fathers here, at least. And he was a professor at, at MIT, and I happened to take. AI, like an AI course from him. And he started off the course by making what I thought was a really important point about how we perceive intelligence. So he talked about one of the very early artificial intelligence problems was symbolic integration. Okay. And he said, that used to be one of the case studies in my course. We would go into great detail about... How Symbolics was written, how it does integration, et cetera, and really dive through the algorithms in detail. And he said, I got to the end of that that section and one of my students and raised his hand said, "Uh, that's not intelligent. And so I asked him, why not? And he says, well, it just integrates the same way I do. So essentially he's saying like, it, what, the way humans integrate equations isn't intelligence either. And so I can worry that if you go down this path, it's almost like a no true Scotsman sort of thing where we start to say, well, look, whatever machines are doing, they're not intelligent, but people are. And then if we start to mathematically define that further and further, in 25 years or something, we'll find out that humans aren't intelligent either. And that actually, we don't know of anything that is intelligent. And so, I've lost the ability to have useful conversations about intelligence. That's yeah. my worry about this path.
0: It's funny you say that. Cholet references that in his paper. It's called the McCorduck effect, which is every time there's a big breakthrough in AI, there's a chorus of people that say, oh, that's not really AI. You right. need to go a bit further.
1: But you have to admit that there is something where you can't describe it, but you say, you see something. Let's say you you have no, like, C3PO do something, and you don't know if it's the animated one or the one with a person inside it. So so you don't know whether that's an AI. And you see that thing do something, and there is something where you can say, wow, that was smart, like that was intelligent. As you have an innate sense of what it means to be intelligent, to be smart. and
2: uh, Well, I I hear you, but what worries me is that, look, we have a history of humans' innate senses ending up being quite flawed sort of (laughs) outlooks on the world. And what worries me is that as we start to formalize, because at some point we do need to formalize these concepts, right? As we start to formalize those innate senses, and let's say, I don't know, maybe we end up deciding that true intelligence is how quickly you can process second order logic or something like that. And then we decide, well, now that we define that and we built a machine that can do that really well, that's no longer intelligence. That's what kind of worries me. It's always going to be a frontier that we'll never reach. It's sort of like with chess. Okay. Is alpha zero intelligent? It, it obliterates human beings. Is it intelligent well, in one sense, it's able to adapt to new positions on the chessboard that it's never seen before. But on the other hand, if you took Alpha Zero and had it play Fisher random chess, would it do so well? I don't know. And therefore, since it didn't do well, it's no longer intelligent. Or what about if, if Alpha Zero plays enough games and at some point it's literally just solved the P space complete problem? And therefore always makes exactly the same move because it knows precisely the correct move does it suddenly go from being intelligent to not intelligent because now it's just a deterministic solution
0: yeah that's quite an interesting point that on alpha go it's been trained on infinite amounts of training data so even with its limited generality it does have some generality but it's been self-playing millions and millions of times you, you raised something interesting, though, which is we have an innate sense of when someone is intelligent. But our intuitions can be wrong because if it's a human, Garry Kasparov clearly learned how to play chess. So that's quite an interesting signal. But of, of an AI, um, our intuition breaks and we can easily be fooled into thinking something is intelligent.
1: Well, I, do, I wouldn't... So no offense to Garry Kasparov, but I would not consider that intelligent because and because I, I know if you have, let's say the, the mental precondition to do that, this sort of stuff. Well, and you practice a lot, then you'll, you're going to get there. It's like athletics. If you are, if your body is just, there is a mix of your body being built for this and you practicing a lot and that's, you know, what makes a world-class athlete. And Isn't
2: uh, isn't there an efficiency thing there though? So Gary Kasparov developed those skills more efficiently. Than another person would have. And it seems that by Chalet's definition, that's what makes him intelligent.
0: Yes. Yeah. Although I think his contrast with efficiency is that all of the AIs at the moment are incredibly sample inefficient. Uh, we'll yep. get on to self-driving cars in a minute, but they needed to be trained on the equivalent of hundreds and thousands of hours of driving, whereas humans can learn to drive in, in a couple of weeks. So I think with Gary Kasparov, it wasn't so much that he could learn it quickly. It was more that he learned it to a high level. And because... Mm-hmm. It, Shollet talks about the G factor, and there are so many correlates in cognitive ability. So it's almost like an implication that if you can learn chess to a high standard, then it implies that you're very good at other cognitive tasks.
2: Which wouldn't be the case with alpha zero. Certainly not.
0: No. Not at all. But uh, just to rewind a tiny bit. So some of the topics that Shollet spoke about was GPT-3. He spoke about some conceptions of deep learning, logical approaches versus vector-based approaches. He spoke about the meaning of life at the end. He spoke about Hutter's conception of intelligence as being a form of compression, which is an old idea and something that he thinks is flawed. He spoke about the Turing test. He spoke about Neuralink, this new thing with Elon Musk. Why don't, why don't we start with Neuralink and then we'll go on to GPT-3, which is quite interesting. So on Neuralink, he says that he's very sceptical about it because it's being pitched as the next big thing. He, he thinks that we already take in way more information than we can process. And our intelligence is externalised via things like Wikipedia and, and even culture as a form of externalised intelligence. He thinks that we already have access to all the information. The bottleneck is our brain. It's really slow and conscious thought takes several seconds, so it wouldn't really make any any difference if we had a neural link
1: are you like i i i i highly disagree with with that because if i don't know a particular fact that i need to know i need to go to my laptop or my phone type it in get up the web page read it in and then i have that information available if there was something if neural i don't i have no clue what it does i think now they, they just want to battle things like seizures with it, epilepsy, you you just counter those signals in the the brain. Blindness. um, Blindness, things like damages. But if the end goal, I think that they have, and that's what Elon Musk says in multiple interviews is that, you know, your bandwidth right now, it's two thumbs. And and with that, I agree. It's yes, our brain might be slower than a computer in terms of number crunching or signal sending and whatnot. But in terms of getting information from the outside into the brain, it's, there can be a lot of speed up.
0: Well, that's interesting. So you're making the point that for high velocity query type information. So if I want to know what the weather is in Australia, I don't even need to get out of my bed. I can just find out, I can know immediately. I've already got a Google Home in my bedroom. So I guess I could just ask the Google Home. But Cholet's point is that with reading at the moment, if you increase the reading speed, let's say, to 500 words a minute, you understand less of it. So the bottleneck seems to be the brain processing speed.
2: All but I can say is R. sorry. Go we ahead. better be very careful with this because as much as my mind wanders, I just see myself getting hooked up to Neuralink, and suddenly I just melt down because I asked a question, got the answer. That led me to another question, just infinite loop, like out of existence. So whatever he does, put in some bandwidth limiters there please because
0: <laughs> I, no, I wonder but, but, whether it would cause some dangerous behaviors because one of the, the reasons for the obesity epidemic is the, the food environment it's never been easier to access hyperpalatable food and maybe people will become addicted to problem gambling online or something because they can do it through their neural link while they're sleeping
1: way easier you just stimulate whatever gives you dopamine there, there's these yeah. right there's these experiments with rats where they can choose between between a dopamine or, or a serotonin dosage in their brain like an I, electrode and food and they they just hit that thing until they're dead um, i seem to
2: recall some science fiction novel about this where essentially the culture went down this path and they ended up being essentially just these brains and jars that where everything was automated and they communicating with each other through their version of neural link or whatever at some point another civilization shows up at their planet it's like, oh, wow, look at all these available resources here with just these jars and brains. They start taking over the place and and the, the brains are just pontificating about how this is morally wrong and shouldn't be <laughs> happening. And they can't do anything to stop it because they no longer really have any type of... One of the issues I always have with the comparisons of, of humans to artificial intelligence is it's not clear to me that we're judging apples for apples. Okay. The human brain, by some measures, is all inefficient and slow and whatever, but not if you start to look at it in terms of its power consumption, in terms of the fact that it's a self-replicating, or at least a species of self-replicating organisms that can function well in this environment on earth and resource. Like there's a lot of constraints that are just ignored. Like whenever somebody brings up the, what if I invent an AI that makes paper clips?" And it just decides in order to do that, it has to strip mine the earth and you know, start spreading through the solar system to make more and more paper clips because it's just better. They've always allied the energy requirements, basic physics, gravity, could this happen, et cetera? So there's a lot of constraints that get ignored in these sort of scenarios, I think.
0: Yeah, and you just jogged my memory a little bit just there, Keith, because you, you talked about Minsky's last student, I think, uh, uh, that you met at or university. Or well, above
2: early one, Patrick Winston. Yeah. Oh,
0: Patrick, yeah. And, of course, Minsky's conception of, of intelligence was about reasoning over knowledge uh, using logical propositions. And I think more recently, AI has been conceived as a search problem more than anything else or, or possibly a, a a learning or generalization problem, although they're strongly related and I've been interested in open-endedness recently. I know we've spoken about this, Keith, and of, of course, all all uh, uh, good search problems have deception. And sometimes there's a yep. false compass and you need to do the opposite of what you think you need to do in order to achieve greatness. And right. t- so any AI that we could produce in the future, I don't think we really have a handle on what that's gonna look like.
1: Sure. I wanted to come back to what you said, what and what they said before, that if you speed up reading, You're just going to understand less. And to me, that, um, like, it's conceivable that you have different parts of your brain that one does reading comprehension, like from visual input to where you have a kind of internal representation of the information. And that seems to be the same process I was talking about when I want to look up a fact. It's whenever I want, there's this page of of text, and I want to get into my brain. I think that has Little to do with how fast once it's in you can do computations with the thing. So in it's that a case, fascinating I, point, I, yeah, I, I, I disagree. If and besides that, we all really want the to have that thing. Plug it in, and the first thing we do is learn kung fu so we can recreate the scene <laughs> from the Matrix. I know kung fu. <laughs>
0: Well, it's quite interesting on that point, because earlier on in in the Lex interview, he uh, asserted that Chomsky has this conception of language as being a system of thought. And Cholet said that he thought that language was a bit like an operating system in in our mind. And who's to say that we need to ingest the book in language form? Maybe the the Neuralink could learn to represent it in some deeper structure so we could acquire the information more efficiently.
2: That's how I see Yannick's point is I actually I don't think language is an operating system. To me, analogies are what they are, but I would have, I would have thought it was more like the shell, the shell language to the operating system. And so I think what was interesting to me about Yannick's point is maybe we can just plug in at some lower level of the kernel there and just upload a bit of data somewhere. And now, now it's able to look up. I'm sure there are biological limits to this, right? Like whatever it is in our mind that forms memories, the structure, the linkages between neurons or chemical potentials, wherever, that's sort of an open question still. But whatever it is, there may be, again, physical constraints on how fast those can form in our mind in a way that's useful. Because for example, sleep, yeah, there's a lot of research that indicates sleep is very an important process and reformatting and reorganizing that type of information so i think there's so many open questions it'll be fascinating it'll be a fascinating technology to yeah. <laughs> to explore if they get it working that's for sure
0: in, even that point is quite interesting because you're implying that there's an intermediate staging area for information and during sleep our brain kind of uh, you know consolidates and moves
1: it around compresses and it. That, Deep well, right yeah. Well, they, they Once do... we upgrade our brain to SSDs, we won't have that problem <laughs> anymore. But I think that's, the... that's
2: that's <laughs> that's must like true goal, right? Is that he? Yeah. You, you know how, I don't know if terrified is right, but he gets really depressed when he starts talking about AI ending the world. You know, it's, like, it's gonna kill us all. Nobody's listening to me. Like I've given up telling people. He just wants to get himself loaded into an AI as quickly as possible, so he can be part of that, <laughs> be part of that civilization. Exactly. It. it it, it's quite interesting as well,
0: because at the beginning, um, he spoke about Jeff Hawkins uh, inspired him because he wrote this book and uh, in about 2004. And it had this vision of the mind as a multi-scale hierarchy of temporal prediction models. And so that, there's conceptions of intelligence as being a form of prediction, as well as you know, Hutter's conception of intelligence as being a form of compression.
1: So yeah. to, to add more on, <laughs> on lots of conceptions,
0: well, it, 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 that's exactly it. You can you can think yeah. about it in so many different ways. But but Cholet argued on the compression point that you know, cognition is about hedging for the for future uncertainty. So compressing is a tool that the human toolkit, a, a, a tool in the human toolkit used in many ways. But cognition is about being able to operate in future situations which contain uncertainty and novelty.
2: Cool. Yeah, well there's a there is a relationship probably there because if you think about let's say some forms of compression algorithms like uh, let's say the one used by JPEG, right, where it creates FFTs or Fourier faces or whatever. You know, what it's looking for there to get the compression is basis functions. What is it that JPEG uses? DCT or something, maybe discrete cosine. I don't remember the details, but the point is you choose some basis functions for lossy compression. You're fitting a set of weights for these different basis functions. And so in doing that, in a sense, they do become possibly more generalizable, right? Because you're smoothing, you're smoothing a little bit and you're starting to ignore some of the higher frequency information that really trips up like uh, image recognition algorithms, for example, with the adversarial adversarially generated images and and whatnot. So I think because a lot of compression algorithms rely on using things like basis functions, you start to achieve some type of generalizable capability there. But I, I while compression may be helpful for intelligence, disagree with the conception of intelligence as compression i I tend to agree much more with temporal hierarchies or something like first order logic in some weird generalized way that covers more than just symbolic reasoning yeah
0: sure but even if you conceptualized it as a a kind of temporal prediction you could argue that compression and and prediction is pretty much the same thing but let's because we've got 15 minutes let's move on to gpt3 because i think this is the bit that excites us all the most GPT-3 is this amazing language model with 175 billion parameters, and only uh, 400
1: bucks a month.
0: It's only 400 (laughs) bucks a month. It can. It can produce incredibly plausible up? and context-aware information. They, so Lex spoke about there could be GPT-N. This, there's no limit in sight. This could just go on and on and on. And interestingly enough, though, the compute bottleneck is not the problem. The data is the bottleneck. It's already been trained on all the data in the internet, and there's lots of bias in it. And of of course, uh, GPT-3 already doesn't know about coronavirus. It's quite limited. In what it knows. Maybe they could create a continuously fine tuned version of G that's what is looking at Twitter. I don't know. Corona, what?
2: <laughs> I'm sorry, you guys, I'm not making sense of what you're saying here. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's really interesting, though, because uh, it's just the total opposite of people, right? It's whatever GPT 3 learned from the internet, it's very different from what people learn from life, because as soon as anyone heard about a virus, pandemic or whatever, wow, like that brings forth entire structures in our minds as to what's going on. <laughs> exactly. So one of the interesting things
0: about GBT3, which might be incredible, is this ability potentially to learn a new task just with a few examples. But you always get the question of, is it memorizing skills or is it actually generally learning something. And we really don't know because it's been trained on data on the entire internet. So you can give it something and it might possibly have just seen that thing somewhere on the internet.
1: Well, it raises the entire question of what does it mean to generalize and are humans generalizing well because they have seen a few instances of whatever somewhere and or not, or is it fundamentally different? I think it's it raises a lot of uh, raises a lot of questions how we even assess again yeah coming back to the beginning how we assess intelligence how we assess kind of systems like this i've been you know arguing for a long time that it, it is very good at interpolating data and it it appears to have saved the training data in some sort of abstract distributed fashion and then interpolates between that which but then you can say yeah that's what humans do right because <laughs> you have your memories and you save them somewhere in your brain and then you interpolate you you have this new thing you need to do i don't know what it is like drive a here you go drive a motorbike instead of a bicycle you can transfer that skill you've done it a couple of times and
2: well i feel like a lot of human intelligence evolved around extrapolating like even just in the sort of mm think about the physical world, right? If I'm trying to go throw spears at at, uh, some type of animal for hunting or whatever, I I can't... uh, Interpolating the motion within the range in which I can move is not really very useful. What's useful for me is in my mind being able to extrapolate and project this trajectory out to some point away from me. And, And you can think about a lot of the things necessary for survival. It's really more about extrapolating and and that's sort of this generalized you know notion of generalization which is let me take what i know in this little confined domain and apply it to something further away and the point that i think was made also in the interview which is that the ability to go outside of the domain in which you've learned is some some key property in the definition of intelligence
1: and does gpt3 do you think, or do they think, GPT-3 exhibits that? It can't throw spears, it's just in the text domain, so it might be a bit harder to assess that sort of stuff. But can I it write do. a
2: novel that actually people would enjoy
1: reading? Well, you can just copy-paste oh. one. <laughs>
0: No plagiarism. It, it it does do incredible things that there have been lots of examples. I think there was a thing on um, Hacker News recently where it wrote an incredibly convincing article or website and people believed it and it got upvoted and it was generated by GPT-3. And so it seems to be optimized for co- coherence. Is that the right word or plausibility? But Cholet said that it, it was really bad on consistency and factfulness. So it's really easy to trip it up. And lots
2: of people are bad with factfulness. So I don't know why that would
0: be considered unintelligent. They certainly are. But it it seems to be like a kind of low level (laughs) thing, because when we have this almost topological framework of understanding and high level reasoning, and we can explain, Shole said that in order for us to constrain GPT-3, we need to be able to explicitly program over it and that's that's how our minds work we we have some kind of generative model which will just spew the words out but we can explicitly reason and instruct and constrain what comes out of our mouths
1: are you sure i mean no. <laughs> that's the entire debate is this happening implicitly in this language model already is so the experiment, we, if you look at the internal states of the language model, could you parse out the kind of reasoning framework from it? Or is it really something fundamentally different than what you do? Is it that you do some symbolic operations and then you generate language on top of that? Or is it that you, uh, as you generate language, even the process is so- somehow locked with, together with the production of language that you're reasoning? i'm not sure i don't i have no clue
0: it's it's a really good question do you do you think that language is a layer on the top of the operating system so do you think that there's some process beneath it which generates the language i think so and you think that's something which you could use to direct the generation of the language
2: within the context of gpt3 i don't know within within the context of a human mind yes It's it's certainly an interesting philosophical question
0: just whether or not neural networks could reason.
1: Yeah, but then you'd have to define what reason means. And then we're back at the beginning because (laughs) we, we have some, again, we have some intuition that it should involve some sort of logic manipulation of symbols, but also it should be not super constrained. Like when people reason, they don't reason by exact principles of logic there's some intuition behind it there's some notion of searching of predicting the future yeah i don't think anyone has yet has yet exactly put the finger on what it means to reason and therefore we probably can't say yes or no to that
0: okay well on the bottleneck issue then Cholet raised an interesting point he said he worked at Google and he was working on some image classifier and the first version of it they took images off random web pages and it was so noisy on the labels I think they actually just did a word cloud or something so they they were just guessing about which words could be used as labels for the images and they trained on all of the images on the internet and the punchline was that having a much smaller uh, data set with, with less noise is better it converges quicker it's got better accuracy and is it a similar thing with uh, GPT-3? Have we now run out of the amount of data that we can use and and are we barking up the wrong tree by just using
1: all of the in- information on the internet? Well, they are already doing a bit of this, right? Because they're already sampling at different frequency from their different repositories of data. So they have, I think, the Google Books and Wikipedia data sets. They massively oversample those because they figure that there's probably... More information dense and also more linguistically correct information in there, and then whatever they get from the rest of the internet, they they just undersample with respect to that. Uh, yeah, I, no, I, oh, sorry.
2: Oh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. And I, I just want to say, and I know Tim, we've talked about this quite a bit, but look, I personally I believe that in a sense, neural networks are a dead end right now. Like, really, what we need to do is think a lot more about topological intelligence about uh, say image recognition algorithms that have built-in affine variants which humans seem to be able to do and understand quite well I know a hot dog if it's a hot dog right in front of my face or a hundred you know feet away I can tell it's a I can tell it's a hot dog and I can ignore the blades of grass and everything else so I think this is just a symptom of kind of a very uh, very early and limited approach to machine learning i e. neural networks, and that that at some point, once we start investing a lot more time in higher order systems, new forms of nonlinearity, uh, logical systems we'll we'll find out that there's plenty of data. It wasn't data really that was the problem. it was encoding that was the problem really
1: Well that is i agree completely with this in terms though of neural networks being at a dead end i maybe from the architectural sense but it seems that we still have kind of one or two orders of magnitude to go with just scaling them and it sounds boring and it sounds dumb and it it's like against the i've, I've seen like a tweet the other day oh OpenAI has these many amazing researchers and the best they can come up with is to build bigger neural networks but there is something to this where, yes, transformers are essentially the most boring thing, right? It's basically a fully connected network on steroids with the where the connections are also dynamic. It, it's everything with everything. And we just pack layers and we just put in data. and But Whoa. what comes out is amazing. And I've said for a long time, this GPT-3 and maybe even more GPT-4 once it comes out will be yeah if, if not intel it will be a game changer for many industries in, in this world and OpenAI oh, i noticed this that's why they price it uh, these are alleged price but that's why they price it at 400 bucks a month but uh, this really it will be a game changer for many industries and uh, yeah so i guess I, I, guess I, I get
2: what you're saying but i, I think what I, i'm making this efficiency mm-hmm. argument again like agreeing that efficiency is somehow also related to intelligence because okay, fine, we keep going down neural networks as they are today, and we scale them and great. What I'm saying is that some decades from now, when we actually make significant breakthroughs in more topological methods, we're going to find out that they absolutely dominate sort of the, just the neural networks as they stand today, like pound for pound, given the same resources, the same compute resources.
1: Yeah, I can see that, yeah. Like I I made this
2: analogy, sorry, Tim, I just want to bring up this analogy I brought up a couple calls ago, which is that if I'm going to fit a parabola and I don't know how to do X squared, and instead I just use rectified linear basis functions, sure, I can fit the parabola with like a whole bunch of rectified linear functions. But on the other hand, the guy that knows how to just multiply two numbers is going to annihilate me with just two parameters, right? Yeah. Yeah that this is exactly it i think uh, it, it's almost it, it's almost
0: an unfortunate situation on the internet we have so much textual information and we can build these epic language models. And they are so big now that we're almost heading towards a phase change where they could potentially disrupt so many different industries. Something like a GPT-3 model makes it easier than ever to usefully find and harness knowledge. It's more than just information retrieval, it's actually doing stuff for you in, in an incredible way. But then you, you talk about computer vision applications and that's when it falls down. Because as, as you say, we will never have the diversity and scale of information, let's say self-driving cars, for example, we're never going to be able to brute force that. Maybe we can to a certain extent up to level four. Cholet argued that it, it doesn't even require real artificial general intelligence to do self-driving you know, driving cars. But if we want to have something which really is at a level of sophistication, I, I think approaching what we can do. Cholet said that we can go to Japan and we can just drive on the roads just using all of the things that we've learned in, in the States or London no algorithm could do that we need to use deep learning for what it's good at which is perception models but then explicitly program the control modules probably just using symbolic reasoning
1: yeah that makes sense (laughs) i wasn't referring to by the way i wasn't referring to intelligence as such i i just think that this this the the technology itself it's whether intelligent or not will be is huge and will probably be huge if just by mere scaling oh i see
2: yeah so i when i was saying it's at a dead end i, I more meant within the context yeah. of generalizable intelligence
1: yeah i agree with that yeah
2: absolutely but, but Yannick,
0: just to finish could you take on Keith's point about if you have a parabola and you try and fit it with Relo, uh, ReLU, relu uh, you're going to need an incredibly high amount of information
1: infinitely and- many
0: yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So, what but does that if, mean if, in, if, in language processing?
1: Well, I can just build the example further and say, okay, if I know x to the 10th power and all the powers below that, I'm going to be terrible again, which you get into the classic overfitting thing. I, in that, it's not. I see your point that if I know something more, I can have potentially fit this data better. But also, if I know the wrong thing more, I can maybe fit it worse. So, the fact well, the, that the example you're bringing up is that the thing you can do more is exactly in line with the data you want to fit. And I'm I totally agree with you that in in the future we might and we probably will find. Architectural developments, uh, maybe training developments, whatnot—ways to pre-process the data that are just so much better because we have some new ability. But this needs to be carefully researched. We can't just increase number of abilities and and hope for that. It's almost like finding some sort of because if I tell you here I have this parabola, here are all the mathematical operations that you could possibly do. Yeah, that's so. A hard time.
2: I think in a way, if I as a human being figure out that I needed x squared and x cubed, at some point, I'm going to figure out as well that I just need x to the n, or actually x to the y, where y is maybe some real number that I'm fitting. And and I'm going to be intelligent about how I assign priors to that variable, whatever, Jeffrey's prior, some, some type of parsimonious sort of system. So the point I'm making here is that Whatever humans are doing, we're great. Or well, not I can't say great. We're better than neural networks at parsimony and yeah. at finding parsimonious solutions. And I think the and I think the community, the machine learning community, has not devoted nearly as much effort as we need to into developing parsimonious algorithms and look at the end of the day we live in an actual universe that has certain physical laws and whatnot and so i'm just saying we need to encode more of that properly more of that prior knowledge because we don't live in some arbitrary arbitrarily changing universe and the more we can encode this type of fundamental more generalizable sorts of knowledge uh, with parsimonious you know kind of outcomes I think is my point. That's what if, I was
1: If could like so it, it is incredibly hard to encode that. Like we have no I clue agree. how to encode this so could a way there to be let's build as humanity one giant GPT thing that is it's this blank slate but takes all the information and then somehow that thing now contains these priors across the world. Right now it's in language on the internet. If we could input giant amounts of data into this one thing that will capture these priors and then on top of that we could build something that makes use of these priors
0: but the, the fundamental dichotomy is do we create the priors or do we learn them
1: well okay
0: it sounds like i'm pointing out the obvious but the fundamental yeah. philosophy in the deep learning world at the moment is the blank slate connectionist ideology is all about you just said the transformers thing connects everything to everything you can do anything and throw loads of data at it and it will just figure it all out
2: so Um, in principle so i don't have any real problem with the statement that in principle you could build some massive thing and, and learn everything from scratch like i don't have a problem with that but the issue is that if you go back to the days of digital computers versus analog computers, right? The earth itself and more broadly, the universe has been performing this sort of analog computation here on the earth for billions of years. And it ended up producing sort of a human mind that from the, the conglomeration of that learning process, essentially, has uh, codified or encoded a lot of valuable information. And so my point is, let's not throw that out. Let's really carefully survey that and and try to codify as much as we can and get it kind of baked in and compiled into our sort of basis functions, as you will, for learning. Because otherwise, and if I think if we do that, pound for pound, CPU for CPU, we'll get a lot more out of our whatever they are, neural networks or whatever you want to call them, than we will if we just say, let's just start over and do everything from scratch In principle. Sure. You can, but I think we'll make a lot more progress if we at least try to survey what's been evolved or designed or however you want to look at it up into this, this noggin of ours.
0: So, yeah. so, so this is what Cholet calls core knowledge. He thinks that okay. we should imbue this core knowledge into the algorithms. But what you said is quite interesting because you said there's nothing bad in theory about learning something from scratch. But in a way there is, because these Transformers models, they don't really learn what they should learn. Computer vision models, they always learn surface shortcuts and textures and all sorts of things that we clearly know are not the right thing they should be learning. It just happens to work statistically. It's just pattern matching. So surely there is an argument for us to really think about this and put even better priors into these systems.
2: Well, look, first of all, I can't go as far as to say that what they're learning is necessarily bad. I I think it's, my view is if you encode all this core knowledge, then they can learn and fit that core knowledge. I think they'll also end up finding all kinds of little weird things that we as people never discovered because of kind of their... I don't know. Like we talked the other day about the fact that the spherical wave comes through a lens and maybe it has some aberration patterns here and there that because of just efficiency reasons, the human mind has learned to ignore. But on the other hand, there's obviously information in that because scientists learned information from looking at things like aberrations and, and whatnot. So what I want to do is give them the power to see all the core knowledge and then see what kinds of crazy stuff they can discover on top of that That's actually useful because i'm sure there's useful information there it's just i don't need them to learn crazy stuff that that would be obsolete if, if they just had core knowledge yep. <laughs> completely I mean,
1: that, right. Yeah, completely that yes i i completely agree too it just all depends on how well we can specify and encode that core knowledge because mm-hmm. if if we misspecify it it already maybe blocks a path to some of these informations
0: by that, do you mean it's substrate-specific?
1: So- well, if you say, for example, the sky is always up, right? That's a core knowledge. Like, like, I'm, I'm, like, this is not. But if we think of it like this, and it's generally true, but then if you're at the on the ISS or whatnot, that's not true. Or if you're in Australia, the sky is down. And then you you forbid the... AI from going down that alley because it's just going to uh, operate under that assumption that the sky is always up.
2: So I agree with you. You have to be careful about it. I would probably code it more as in some direction there is a sky or the sky is in some direction and just give it the knowledge of directionality of sort of a 3D vector that points somewhere and that there's a a spherical hull or whatever in, in some direction there. So. We do have to be careful. You don't want core knowledge. You want core knowledge to be general. <laughs> I hate exactly. to say that word general, but yes, don't make core knowledge so specific that it becomes a, a constraint. It's more about coding in structure, if yes. you will, like yeah. the group structure or, or other kinds of structure.
0: Mm-hmm. But, but the, the point I was making though is if take one of Cholet's examples, objectness. It's still, the way you code it depends on the substrate of the information. So if you have... Um, a computer vision application, which there's a camera, it's at some point it corresponds to pixels, that it might be a NumPy array or something that that has three color channels. And the way that you implement that prior is in the substrate of how the information comes to you. And and that seems to bias it straight
2: away. Well, so my take on that is that whenever we encode, whenever we encode uh, a core knowledge, if you will, we should take care to encode its opposite as well and allow it to be parameterized. So if I'm gonna encode objectness, I would also encode the concept of diffuseness because look, sometimes the boundaries between objects are, are hard to define. Like I have a bucket of ice cream here. Now what happens if I scoop out a piece? You know, at what point does it become an object in and of itself. And this, like what we're discussing right now, I think is itself a part of the core knowledge of the world is the fact that that there are structures, there are duals of structures, there are anti-structures. That's part of our core knowledge that we've discovered over time.
1: Okay. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. And this, this goes in, into many ideas that are around uh, in like Benjo has this notion of the consciousness priors, which is this kind of factor graph where he says there are explanatory variables that are sparsely connected and so on. I think lots of people trying to to abstract that. I mm. think but it's hard, like you said. It's extremely first. It's extremely hard, and second of all, it's it, for the ones that are come probably come closer to reality. They're not really computationally yet right. feasible.
2: I hear you there. I, I felt like when I was in graduate school trying to do research, at some point I had some simple physical model. What I thought was a very simple model, right? And I needed to integrate it. I couldn't figure out how to integrate it. Mathematica couldn't figure out how to integrate (laughs) it. So I went to the library and I got, we had these sort of back in whenever it was the forties through seventies or something, the, the Russians produced these massive tomes of all kinds of series and integrations and things like that. So I go look up my, my equation. And it was actually a series and I found it in there. Great. And it had a name. And so this is the Sterling series of the second kind. I'm like, oh, cool. It's got a name. And it says, turn to page uh, 1326. So I go get that volume. I look it up and it says the Sterling series of the second kind is defined by this equation. And that's it. Like on to the next session. And I'm like, a section, I'm like, okay, if the Russians couldn't figure out anything, I can't figure out anything with this series. And and at that moment, I realized for my whole life, all the math problems I've been giving had all these convenient solutions that you could go look up in the back of the book and check your answer, make sure it's correct. But as you're saying, reality, the physical world throws at you these simple things that just aren't computationally, (laughs) you know, feasible or have no symbolic solution. It's like you look at the equations for GR they are they're not high school equations, but they're not really that complex. Yet finding solutions for them, pretty hard.
1: I agree.
0: Well, just to finish off then, uh, Lex asked Chalet what he thought the meaning of life was. I'm interested to get your, your take on this. He, he says that even your m- most personal thoughts are not yours. <laughs> Everything we do creates ripples, and these ripples are the meaning of life. Uh, we are cultural beings. This is what makes us different from animals. Everything about us is an echo of the past. If we create anything, it becomes part of the minds of future humans. So as we contribute to culture ourselves, it creates ripples going forwards. And that's a very kind of philosophical thing for him to say, but he does believe that um, culture is externalized intelligence and he has a very collective conception of our place on, on this planet.
2: Look, not to wax too, too poetic, but I agree with that sentiment. I mean, to me, and this kind of gets back to our first discussion. To me, the meaning of life is love in the sense that I genuinely care about what's happening to other people and that we as a species progress like in a positive way. And I I want us to be around somewhere in the universe for as long as possible. That's my op, you know, what I'm trying to optimize there. I get it. Eventually protons are going to decay and nothing will be left. But if we look back and say, If we integrated the number of human beings over the course of time, I want that number to be as large as possible, if you will. And so even going to things like the testing scandal, my motivation there is I want as many people as possible to achieve as much as possible. And so how do we get there? That's my question.
1: Yeah. I got nothing to add. (laughs) Yeah. It's a big, it's a big question and it's a nice answer and I agree with it.
0: Interesting. And of course, the uh, if, if you look at what makes up your bodies, it, it existed before you were both born, and will continue to exist after we die.
2: Yeah, and lots of it came from the apparently the collision of neutron stars. Now that's the prevailing theory for a lot of heavy metal generation. So,
0: <laughs> exactly, we are made of stars. Well, uh, gentlemen, Stardust. this has been an incredible conversation. Thank you so much, and we will be back next week talking uh, about a a computer vision paper. We've spoken a lot about contrastive um, unsupervised vision algorithms, but we're going to do it again next Friday. So tune in for that and uh, see you folks. Thank you. Cheers.